Welcome to the Vertical Go-To-Market Podcast, where you'll discover new opportunities to grow your business from seven figures to eight from the world's most successful agency and B2B SaaS executives. I'm your host, Corey Quinn. Let's jump into the show. Today, I'm joined by Tan Dabba. Welcome, Tan. Nice to be on the, on the show. Really looking yeah. forward to this. I'm looking forward to it, too. So could you share a little bit about yourself and the work you do with the audience? Yeah, sure. Yeah, you could call me a consultant. About six years ago, I started my own company, and it sort of became a mission for me to help B2B SaaS companies out there. What I saw is that a lot of B2B SaaS companies have fantastic products, but they struggle to stand out. So where I put all my energy is help them crystallize what makes them remarkable, then identify with them who's prepared to pay premium for that and why. And then I help them with their positioning and their value proposition so that they can start to create what I call predictable traction, because that's at the end, always the goal. Beautiful. I love all of these topics. Definitely excited to have our conversation today. For context, I believe in previous conversations and just by being familiar with you and your background, before you started your consultancy, you were at a company called Unit 4. I think you came up through product marketing. Could you share with us a little bit about what Unit 4 is, as well as how you sort of went to market at that company with regard to verticalization? Oh, that's a long story indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been there 26 years. That's what I'm saying. It's a long yeah, story. It's a long I story. Yeah. 26 years. That's amazing. One company. But I mean, I've been doing every three years, I've been doing something else. And that, that at the end keeps it like, uh, like I'm working for a new company every time again. But you, you're right. It started all in the Netherlands back in the 90s. Let's, let's skip that. And did our IPO end of the 90s, started acquiring businesses. And at some point, we acquired a company from Norway called Agresso. And that was a product that was like an ERP for the services industry. So they, uh, like an ERP with finance and procurement and project management and HR and these type of things. And they sold it to central government, local government, education, professional services, not-for-profit. Everyone that is delivering value through their people. That's how I got introduced to verticalization because my initial work was always in the, in the SMB market with a, with a small, small and medium business ERP and we sold it to everybody. When I got into the new world, my, my job turned international and that's where we started to work with the mid-market and large organizations. And you can imagine if you sell your suite to a professional service company that is, for example, building the palm tree in Dubai. Like, like a large professional service company with all engineers. And the next day you're meeting a local authority in the, in the area of Boston. <laughs> it's totally different language. So uh, that's how yeah, the whole importance of verticalization kicked in. So when you acquired that company, were they already organized in such a way that they had separate sort of people and resources targeting these different verticals? Or is that something that came after the acquisition? No, no, no. That was already in place. Uh, mm. the, they were already, for example, in the UK, they had a pretty good traction with, uh, with local government and with uh, education. And there was also a unit that was, that was focused specifically on professional services industry, typically the management consultants, the engineering uh, consultants, and so on. But for example, in Norway, they had, uh, yeah, I mean, almost 95% market share in central government, around 80 or 90% in local government, a lot of not-for-profits. Not so for every country we had, like there were different sweet spots in different vertical markets, and there were also dedicated teams going for those markets. Because you cannot 
if you're a salesperson and you need to demo and, and, and you got a pre-sales person coming with you, you need to speak the language of that industry. Could you, the product yeah. wasn't, but the product wasn't verticalized though. Okay. So that's interesting. The yeah. sales and marketing approach was verticalized and localized Absolutely. potentially, but then they, but regardless whether you were a government or education or, or, or other verticals, they would effectively get the same product. They would get a small, I mean, at the end, you know, you buy an ERP, you buy the finance, you buy the procurement and the, the payroll, the HR and so on. But they were all then, I mean, the, the product was extremely flexible. Yeah. It was implemented according to yeah, yeah the, the habits and the, the language that was used in that particular vertical in that particular uh, country as well, because it's also very often different, uh, except from language, uh, apart from language, it's also very different country to country. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the, the interesting thing was, for example, in the UK, we had, I mean, there's about 120 universities with that product. We did, we had about 80, 80 of them as a customer. Um, and we didn't, we didn't have anything to do with their core business, which is student management and, and the learning practice. We just did their finance. Hmm. Yeah. And we started with the, the, the biggest ones, which is also an interesting thing. Normally you think, okay, we start with a small one and then we do another one. Then we get some traction and, um, we start growing up. They turn it completely upside down. They start with the, the largest universities out there because of the differentiation that the product brought across, mm -hmm. um, which was its whole project accounting capabilities. And that was extremely valuable for organizations that, for example, in, in education organizations that do did uh, research, for example, uh, Nottingham, uh, university and Cambridge and Oxford, these type of organizations, they have all. I do, of course, that they, they, they do study, they, they help people study, um, and yeah, get their grades, but on the other end, they also have big research arms, uh, that, that became our sweet spot there. So it was a very interesting way of going to market. It is. And so at that time you had acquired this company, they had these sort of vertical go to market approach with these different teams who are specialists in government or universities, education, these yep. different things. How did that evolve over time after the acquisition and how are you involved in that process? Yeah, well, it's, that's a very good question. Um, initially it's, we, we just kept going and we kept, I mean, I started to kind of own the whole product marketing side of things and we started to, uh, tune our messaging towards these vertical markets. Uh, and I remember very well, I was in Boston at some point in time. And it's also, I mean, I wrote in my book, I'm, I'm referring to that, that conversation on, on page number one, I guess. Mm -hmm. which was more of an eye opener for me, um, when it, when it comes to like the art of positioning, uh, and the art of kind of creating a value proposition that resonates. I was briefing an industry analyst from technology evalu uh, evaluation services, uh, Pedro Jakavlovich. And after about half an hour into that, and I was in this, in the Marriott in Boston, we were sitting there and going through my slide deck. And at some point he said, okay, you know, time out. Because there's definitely something that is super different about your product, but you got a very strange way of talking about it. So, <laughs> so I think I understand what you get and, and that is, I, I understand why this is really important. Get some help. <laughs> so that's, um, that's where we did, we started to, to, uh, really hone in on, um, yeah, on positioning and value proposition work. And I did, I, I did hire an external, external consultant for that, that, mm -hmm. uh, that opened my eyes in a number of ways. 
Yeah. And that's where, yeah, I mean, things started to flow from there in a completely different, and accelerated from there in a completely different way. And it, it really became clear to me that yes, we had a horizontal product and we were selling that across various vertical markets. And we also realized that we were not the best solution for everybody in that market. You know, we were not the best solution, uh, except in, well, you could say different for Norway and for Sweden, where they had 90% market share in certain verticals, <laughs> um, but that were more government deals. In, in, you start to realize, okay, okay, now that we've repositioned and now that we got it crystal clear, what makes us remarkable, and we, we did this study and we started to interview customers and we interviewed 10 of this customer and 10 there. And then five of them said, 10 of them said, I, I love it because it's so flexible. And the other were like, we, yeah, well, I wouldn't say we hate it, but it's so flexible. It's like, we wish we had something more standard. And then it's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, because they were using the same product. And yeah. from the outside, they were exactly the same in terms of how big they were, how, many, how much revenue they had, what type of service they were doing, just a totally different reaction. And that's where we started to figure out, okay, hey, wait a minute, there's something about this product that one group loves and why do they love it? And, and why is that important? And the other group doesn't. And that helped us with really narrowing down the segmentation. Like you say, like I said in the beginning, what makes us remarkable and who's prepared to pay a premium for that? And mm. from there onwards, once we nailed that, uh, we started winning eight out of 10 deals and we had competitors uh, qualifying out when we were in the deal. Uh, competitors we were heavily impressed with or intimidated with before that. And okay. uh, that's where I sort of got the, uh, the fever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. For this, for this business, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I've, I've got that fever too, uh, uh, which is awesome. The so, let me try and recast this and and help me uh, make sure. I, let me know if I didn't get this or if I did get this right. So, you you have this sort of horizontal product. You have these vertical markets. Did you did you find that you needed to create differentiation and unique positioning at the vertical level? In addition yep. to the the global brand, yes and no, yeah, so yeah. That's uh, it's, I mean, you of course you have to speak the language, because in budget in, in local government, when you talk about profit, they look at you and like you're crazy. We don't have profits. <laughs> we have a budget, and we have yeah. to keep within the budget. We cannot yeah. overspend there. Right. So th that's language, and of course, there's there's all kind of other language that's verticalized. Mm. What we found and that is, yeah, I mean, I, I should have said it in my story, is that we were yes. Going after various vertical markets, but we realized we are not, maybe not the best for everybody in there, but there's a slice in there whereby the characteristics of those businesses, whether it is local government or a professional service company or not-for-profit or, or an education, a university, where they share similar type of characteristics that are made for this product. Interesting. Uh, so and that's where, really where we started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And that was about change. Uh, these were all organizations that were Taking change is something good, something to, um, yeah, to, to really embrace and do something with, to stand out in their marketplace. Mm. Uh, the organizations that hated change, yeah, they wanted to go, well, they wanted to have something that was out of the box, implement it, don't change it. Well, yeah, you can't change it anyway. So that didn't matter. But the ones that did, we had a huge advantage. And, um, but we figured out at some point that you could almost send a local government for a reference visit to a professional service company and they would speak the same language. So in other they, words, 
Yeah. So in other words, you you positioned based on that that common shared problem exactly. or pain point yeah. or or yeah. initiative. So regardless of whether they were government, education, universities, um, that was sort of where you started, but you ended yeah. up was businesses that um that had a focus on change were gonna be the ones that are gonna gonna be the best suited for the benefits of your product. Exactly, yeah. We actually made an acronym for it, or the, the consultant that, that worked with us, uh, Judith Rothrock, she she she, nailed, she labeled it Blink, Business is Living in Change. If you blink your eyes, their world has changed. And uh, right. we all think about, for example, local government. Love as, that. Yeah, but I mean, these don't, these, these people don't change. Mm. Well, my God, these these organizations are, it's, it's neither, well, it's ongoing. Um, because they have so many services, you know, some, some of these local authorities have 50 services, whether you're a local authority of 8,000 inhabitants or 80,000. And I have actually been interviewing two local authorities next to each other, Stockholm and a smaller town. I forgot the name of that, like 80,000 versus, uh, or 800,000 versus 8,000 citizens, exactly the same type of portfolio mm. in terms of the services that they provide to their people. And they have to just do it within the budget and they have to be clever with it. And uh, it's constantly tuning and, uh, and because it's about people, I mean, if they have to adjust things, uh, for example, if they have to lower cost, they cannot say like, like a production company, we just lower our stock. We just buy less products um, or we dump, our, we dump our, our stock so that we get rid of it. No, you're dealing with people here. You cannot say this week I need 800 people and next week I need 400 and then I need 6,000. 6, it doesn't work like that. So it's, it's really mini, yeah, miniature change every single day. Was, was that, that, um, the blink in the, in the positioning around change and, and, and that whole, um, uh, that whole positioning, was that differentiated relative to the other people who you were oh, yeah. going up against? What were the, how were they exactly. positioning themselves? Uh, not that, because they were, that was their weak spot. SAP, <laughs> you know, I mean. Companies, I mean, I have full respect for our competitors always. And that's also what I'm doing in, with my current work. I'm always trying to look at the competition with respect yeah. because the people that buy those products are not stupid. A lot of times you think, oh yeah, well, they're stupid because they don't buy our, our products. No, have respect for that and start thinking about, have empathy. What do they want that they don't see in you, but they see it in them? So for example, people that buy SAP. They don't buy it for, for making change. They buy it for getting control, for top-down initiatives, for being super process-oriented. That's what the product is perfect for. And, um, but yeah, the moment you, you need, I mean, I had customers that, that I was talking to a CFO at some point in time at a, a very large IT service company in Belgium. And after one and a half hour, he, he said, okay, let's, I, we couldn't find a good example or, um, and it was because they are doing so much change. And he said, we, we, there was a governmental, governmental change about, uh, rental cars, um, company cars, and there were going to be an additional tax on that. Um, so everybody in the company was, was impacted by that because they all had company cars. So everybody was moaning about it. We have to pay more tax. And he said, yeah, well, uh, we, we realized, okay, we have to capture a little bit more information. We have to change the process here and there. And we have to create reports for the, for the employee, for our business and for the government. He said, but that just took 10 minutes. Is that what you mean? I said, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> if you would have to do that with an SAP or an Oracle and respect for them, it's, yeah, you have to kind of bring a couple of consultants in there and they have to make changes all over the place. 
for the right business for manufacturing companies, perfect solution. You know, yep. for wholesale distribution, yep. perfect solution. Yeah. Yeah. For companies living in chains, not so good. At least in that in that era. Sure. Yeah. 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 Of course. I think that's really powerful, and yeah. uh, that kind of speaks to sort of the work that you do now in your consulting. You have a book that you put that you yeah. put out, and you talk a lot about. Um, and you, you, you teach about uh, positioning and messaging and differentiation. Could you talk a little bit about this concept of predictable traction? You mentioned it in your book. What yeah. is predictable traction? It is the ability to keep growing in good and bad times. And when we get traction, I mean, typically everybody always think about startups. You build a product and then you start to you start to get uh, the first customers and the first 10 and then the first 100 and so on. So that the traction is building. The market is dynamic. And that's, uh, that's something that a lot of people forget. We just had COVID as a good example. And after COVID came an economy crisis. And then there was a war. And it had all kinds of supply chain issues. So our, the, the customers we sell to and that buy our products are constantly in a, yeah, in a flux of all kinds of changes that they make themselves. Um, like the aspirations that they are, that they're trying to achieve every single year, then the, the external pressure from the outside. So what their priorities are and the pain points are, is always changing. And that's mm -hmm. where, when you talk about product market fit, it's, yeah, it's almost like an illusion. It's always, there's always something else that needs to happen in order to keep the product market fit. And if you don't do that, that traction will at some point stall, you know? And then I'm not even talking about the fact that you also get new competitors, which are going to steal a little bit of business from you. Now, if there's, if in the ideal world, without any competitors, even then it will stall. And that's what I'm talking about. First of all, okay, so what is your, what is the foundational things you have to get right? Then how do you get momentum, building momentum, traction momentum? And then how do you keep that momentum going? And that's the resilience part. So how do okay. you ensure yeah, you have the resourcefulness in the business to to ensure that you are ready, that you can be ready and have the resources to, to be ready for the next thing. Yeah. Could you share some ideas about how to design a business so that it creates oh, yeah. that, yeah, that, that predictable traction? Yeah. Well, like I said, it's, uh, I see it in three, I mean, in my book, I'm talking about three lever, three phases almost. Uh, the yeah. first one in my book, I'm talking about the value lever. Then I'm talking about the viability lever. And then the last one is the volume lever. The viability and volume can, always, can, can actually be exchanged for each other. Start, it's always start with the, the, the value lever. And in my work at these days, they, they call it the, the, the traction foundation. Um, so what is it all about? You know, you, the value of your company, uh, I, I talked about it before. What makes you remarkable uh, in the eyes of your customers? Because a lot of companies start thinking about, okay, well, what makes it remarkable is our user interface. You know, it's so, it's so slick. I've never seen anything slicker than this. That's not what, I mean, customers couldn't care less. Um, so that is all about uh, what I typically go through is an exercise with my customers to, first of all, uh, build what I call, and I refer to, and there's an essay on my website on that, the, the, the segmentation cocktail. What is your ideal segmentation cocktail? So you think about, you know, the, the, the margarita that you love or that cocktail that you love. There's all kinds of ingredients in there. And what a lot of companies forget when they're doing the segmentation is to go beyond firmographics and demographics. What they say is, okay, it's a company of this size, 500 to, to, to 2,000 people uh, in this region, and they do this for a business, and they have so much revenue, and blah, 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 blah. All the things that you can actually search for on LinkedIn. It's all good, 
but that's more or less yeah paving the yeah the, the outside boundaries of where you're going to look for companies yeah and you find ten thousand well i can get i can guarantee you nine thousand will likely not buy from you mm. so where you want to focus is the thousand that do and so what characterizes them that's where you start to throw in all the ingredients like what are the dynamics that they're living i mean talking about that example earlier on they live in change for example they do a lot of acquisitions they are this heavily regulatory so these are unique things for a certain group in that market that you can uniquely address what are the risks they tolerate what is for example non-negotiable for them is it quality is it speed is it reliability is it consistency i mean they have ideas around that. What do they secretly want? What do they value? What do they aspire? All of these things, is all, it's all people type thing. You cannot look for that on LinkedIn, but you can address it with your messaging. So if you understand that first, and ideally that's, that's of course where product market fit is really helpful because then you have customers and you can see, okay, I've got a hundred customers. These are the 20 I'd love to get a thousand of. And these are the, this is a group that yeah we they bought our solution and we needed the money in that period in time if they would have buy, if they would go to the competition we would actually wave them goodbye what okay. is the difference between them right sure. right and if you art articulate that that's where you create your your segmentation cocktail or once mm -hmm. once you've got that then you can start to look with empathy okay what are their unique problems and and also like what are the problems that they that others might have that they don't care about and the other way around so that's where you can start to hone in that. You create a long list of problems, 50 maybe. And then for each problem, uh, I'm talking about it in my book, uh, I'm talking about a triangle. And that's about three key questions to ask. Like how valuable is it to solve this? For every problem you, you, you rank that on a scale of one to 10, how valuable is this to solve for them in their eyes? And how valuable is this and this and this? And then you can actually start sorting most valuable, least valuable. Hmm. Second question is how critical is it to solve it? Because if it's something is valuable, but not critical, it's a nice to have. And you can try to sell and sell and sell, but they will continuously postpone the deal. Because not now, other priorities. And then the third question comes in, because now you have a combination of highly valuable and highly critical. If you have those two numbers, you can multiply them. You end up with a number between zero and a hundred. Focus on the one that are above, above 80. Then you start answering question, okay, and where can we, with our solution, exceed expectations. And that's where your remarkability comes in. Where do you, your customers say, oh my God, oh my God, if you would take it away from me, I would scream, you know, I would pay you double uh, to, to please keep it here. So what are those things? And, and I'm, I'm in, uh, on my website, I'm talking about magic concepts. What are those magic concepts inside your solution? Mm. And the reason why I'm talking about that, because I don't want it to be a feature because a competitor can then say, okay, ah, positioning around that feature. I make a team of 20 developers available for one or two sprints and we have it as well. Like check. <laughs> now it needs to be something that has, that has sort of defensible differentiation. Mm. Uh, ideally so deep that if your competitor wants to match you there, they have to rebuild their whole solution. That is really where the power is. And once you understand that, that's where you have all the ammunition to start positioning yourself, create a value proposition that is irresistible for customers. Uh, you, you can start to take position. A lot of companies think they are positioned. That's another thing that uh, I, I'm always ranting about, but they're not positioned. And what is happening then is that their competitors will comp position them exactly as they like, or your, your customers will put, put you in a position and you might not like that. So right. it's really important to take position.
uh, and get over that, I, yeah, that hurdle of, yeah, but we might ex get excluded from a couple of deals. <laughs> what point in the business's life cycle does, is, is it important to do this work? Is it day one or after they've got some product market fit or somewhere down the I, road? Yeah. I mean, of course you, you have to, if you, if you're just starting with your idea and you get your minimum remarkable product, I don't like to talk about minimum <laughs> viable product, uh, because minimum viable in a lot of people's eyes is okay. It's the really bare minimum for something to actually run. Now it yeah. needs to be minimum remarkable. So you go deep on a certain number of things. That's where, I mean, you, you cannot even position yourself because you're testing things out. Uh, and at some point customers say, I, I want this. And another one wants this. And do they want the same thing? Or do they want it? Do, does one want a little bit more or a little less? That's how you start to go towards product market fit. But you can already start to see like where, yeah, where, where does this resonate and what is this really all about? The ideal moment where positioning comes in is where you have product market fit, where mm. uh, you're sort of hitting, you, you should start growing faster, but you're hitting those ceilings. Yeah. Because it's not clear enough. Clarity is king at the end. Clarity is king. I love that. I was just thinking yeah. about uh, Donald Miller's statement yeah, uh, earlier exactly. today, which is like, if you confuse, you lose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I quote him in my book because I mean, I'm a big fan of Donald. Me too. Me too. That's yeah. awesome. Hey, it's Corey. Almost every day I talk with agency owners who are frustrated with getting their outbound program off the ground. The truth is too many agencies are too dependent on inbounds and referrals to grow their business. We all know that it's getting harder and harder to generate inbounds and that it's just not a sustainable way to grow your business. I'd like to give you the six secrets for driving consistent ROI from your outbound that I learned as Scorpion's chief marketing officer, where we doubled the business from 20 million to 40 million just by adding outbound to an existing inbound only program. It's a free six day email course that will transform your outbound from broken to consistently driving new sales opportunities. You could sign up and get the first secret right now by going to get outboundroi.com. That's getoutboundroi.com. Now back to the show. Can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned about the segmentation. Like how do you approach segmentation in with, with a SaaS client? Yeah. Like I said, I, I always start from the customer perspective and initially I start with the team internally. Okay. What do you know about the customer? And I ask, I ask it to the people that are I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing what I call pressure cooker, four weeks mm. sprint, where I bring in internal and external people. And first of all, capture all the crowdsource, the knowledge internally, because the sales know something, the marketing knows something, people in product, the product manager knows something, people in support know something, customer success manager know a lot of things. And you get, a, get a, already a pretty good picture about what the customer is about. Then I do a lot of research around the customer websites. Um, so what do their customers that they want more of, so the ideal customer, and that's typically something that's a gut feel. Okay. So they give me the list and then I start looking at their websites and okay, what is it? What do they say on their about page? What do they promise their customer? Interesting. What do they, what do they say some, uh, for example, when they hire people, what their organization is really all about. And you learn a lot from that in terms of what they stand for and not what they value. Of course, they, sometimes they, they position their value, uh, the values on the website what I promote internally, I mean, how the culture is really fitted together, whether they are really collaborative, whether they're, they're like 
top down. You, you start, at some point, you start to connect dots. I, I did a project for a company called Sana Commerce uh, a couple of years ago for repositioning them. They've been around. I mean, good example of a company that has product market fit. Mm. Had well, had a lot of product market fit. They were in business for maybe eight nine years already, and they thought there's that's an e-commerce platform that they were the shortcut to e-commerce because they had embedded that e-commerce platform inside an ERP, either SAP or Microsoft. And as a consequence, you didn't have to do the integrations anymore faster to get up and running. Their customers couldn't care less about that. So when I, when I started to, to re research them and I saw companies like Michelin and uh, Royal Brinkman, a large company, company in the uh, horticulture industry in the Netherlands, mm. I spoke to a number of building material companies, really big ones from, from Mexico. And when I started to look at all, look at them at the table, I figured out that, okay, there's multiple verticals here and they're all selling to B2B and they all have been around for quite a, quite a while. And that was something that I initially was like, I saw it, but I didn't just kind of look at it. But what I figured out is that the majority of their customers were more than 25 years old, sometimes 50, sometimes a hundred years old. And their business was really all about building long-term relationships. And when I started talking to them about why that solution, and I did do these interviews in depth, they said, it's not about, you know, getting the shortcut to e-commerce. That's only a one-time moment. What we are all about is long-term relations. And when we make a promise, we have to keep that promise. And that's what these guys do like no one else, because they have architected the product in a different way. So they're remarkable, they're remarkable from an architecture perspective, because they're different from how Shopify and Magento and Wiz and all the others have do, are, are doing it because they're integrating on top of an ERP and they are inside it. So what, whenever a customer is looking at the website or they're calling them right, right uh, at the desk and say, do you have this available? The answer is the same. Price is the same. The stock is the same. The transportation costs are calculated the same. All of these B2B rules that they have agreed upon, all the same. When these companies are on the building side, for example, a uh, building material uh, company that sell to big projects that are building big, big condos and office buildings. When these companies buy from them and they say, I want to have a, a truck with, with these stones and I want to have another truck with these windows and I want to have it tomorrow at four, they can guarantee it's going to be there at four and exactly, exactly in the right amount. And that's what these companies are, are making their margin on. Because they can utilize their whole team to just finish the job. Yeah. And that is powerful, you know, and you can, when you can support and amplify what makes your customer special, mm. that's what I'm trying to look for in how we segment, how we position and the value proposition. What advice would you have to, let's say a CEO of a, maybe a young SaaS company or maybe an agency who has taking a sort of a generalist, non-differentiated approach to their product, let's say it's a horizontal product and, hey, everybody needs a website or, hey, everybody needs, you know, a CRM. And they're thinking about taking more of a specialized vertical, maybe a verticalized approach to their business. What mm -hmm. advice would you have for them in that moment when they're trying to figure out, like, what's the first step to take to start specializing their product or service? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it doesn't really matter whether it's verticalizing or whether it's niching down. But it's getting specific and okay. starting, well, I mean, first, first chapter in my book is remarkable software companies acknowledge they cannot please everyone. So try to please someone. 
really, really well. So that, you know, what you do in their eyes is remarkable because they will, they will help you find another one and another one, another one, and there will be enough. Because in the sounds world, it's always, you know, you start with an idea and, and then you, I mean, a lot of that, and luckily the, the, the funding market is a little bit, uh, cooled down right now. Yeah. But they, they started to sell their idea. And then the first question these investors ask, what is it? What is the size of your to total addressable market? And they wanted always to make it as big as possible. Oh, the bigger the better, right? Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, exactly. 40 billion growing 35% kegger and <laughs> no, I mean, the fact that this market is fantastically big, doesn't mean that they're going to buy you, you know, and I'd rather focus within that large TAM on a sub-segment of a sub segment of a sub-segment where I can actually start scoring eight out of 10 deals. Then I need 15 leads and then I've got 12 customers. Year right. done, yeah. right? That comes down again to, yeah, acknowledge that you cannot please everyone. So who are the ones where you can make a, a truly a true difference? And that goes back to starting with the triangle I'm, I'm writing about in my book. Make the list of problems that these customers have. How valuable are they? What are the, uh, what, which one are the most critical? And, and on, on top of that, where can you make a difference at this stage? with the product or the services that you have. And then next year, it might, it might be different because your product has evolved. Okay, we do, we do it again. It's, it's not that you, it's set, not set in stone. Yes. Well, yeah, of course, ideally it would be set in stone. And sometimes it's little, if you have product market fit and your products, your, your core differentiation doesn't change every year again, then, okay, that, that, that's stable. But if you're really in your infancies and your product is just getting out of, uh, almost a, a 0.8 version better better release <laughs> and that's a different that's a different thing sure it's much more organic um, at that point but start there zoom in what what is a, a, a section of that market that you can own and dominate with what's with the, the thing that you have in my i mean my my book i'm talking about uh, uh a pretty interesting company from um from south africa uh aero Oh, I forgot the name. Anyway, I'll, I'll, it will come to mind. It's a company that's, uh, that started their business as a drone service, taking pictures of farms. Yes. And you mentioned this. Yes, exactly. And then they realized, okay, yeah, having a picture of, of, of the crop that you have, it might be valuable to some of them to see, okay, what, what's going on. Cause, cause these are really, really big there. It takes you three days to drive around the farm. Um, <laughs> And then they realize, okay, there needs to be something that we can do with those pictures. For example, okay, where do you need to focus your, your time and effort in terms of it's too dry, it's too wet, there's a disease here, disease there. And they realized, okay, we can do that. And we, we have to hone in on a particular type of crop. And the market was, I mean, everyone was, I think it was, a, yeah, I forget what, what the crop was, but they started to focus on, on citrus, which is only 10% of the market, but they nailed it and mm. they became dominant there. And mm -hmm. that's where the whole thing started to escalate and they started to grow outside of South Africa and so on. But it's, it's a good example again. They could do all of those type of crops, but they focused on making it really, really special for, for one type. And that's where yeah, that was noticed. I mean, talking also about this, uh, this horizontal product that, that we had at unit four, it was technically a product that if you run a company and you need, you need to do your finance, you could work with it. But then, yeah, then there are a thousand options. <laughs> right. 
So for us, it was, okay, how much, how many deals do we really need to make a fantastic year? It was about a hundred mid-market, large type, uh, with a particular average deal size. And then we find the best hundred. That's it. And what are, and what are the characteristics of those companies? And, and, and if and next who, year we have a new module or we have a new product, yeah. we, we adjust it again. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Last question for you, Ton. What, what's your motivation? My motivation? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, my mission at the end is to help uh, as many as possible B2B SaaS companies stand out in their marketplace. That's why I wrote my book. That's why I write a daily email. Yeah. And that's what I offer my services. But uh, it's not all, not all about that. And you can see this on my website. There's a lot of free resources there because I believe if, if there's more products out there that become remarkable, first of all, we all have a better, um, we have more joy, yeah, more joy in our work because <laughs> yeah. we get to use those products Yeah, and, and everybody, everybody wins with that. Because I've been in, I mean, talking about financial software and payroll software, my God, Dell software, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing sexy about that. But I mean, I have seen companies like Gusto, for example, I talk about them yeah. in my book as well. You know, they make payroll sexy. Yeah. At least I when I, them. when I wrote about it in my book, I haven't looked at them in, in a while again. Yeah, but no, I, I use them. I, I just got an email. I got paid today. So. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, oh yeah. 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 They make it fun. They make it fun. Yeah. So, and that's remarkable. Yeah. People talk about it. Done. Where, where could people find out more about you? Where could they find your book? What's a good way for people to get in touch with you? Go to my website, valueinspiration.com. And otherwise, you just search my name on, uh, on LinkedIn, Ton Dobbe. Um, <laughs> that's <is>. pronunciation. <laughs> and I am always on, on LinkedIn every single day because I, I post every day there. And uh, yeah, happy to start conversations there. Beautiful. That is awesome. You do such important work for SaaS businesses, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know the listeners have gotten thank a ton of value. So thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Corey Quinn, and I hope you join me again next time for the Vertical Go-To-Market Podcast. If you receive value from the show, I would love a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.